so today, as we mentioned earlier, we're, we're, we're continuing on in our Church in the Move series, and we reach our penultimate session before uh, concluding our studies and, and next week, and then a change in direction for the summer. Uh, and so far, we've been looking through Acts chapter 6, verse 8, right through to Acts 11, 18, where we left it off a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and we've charted the Church of Jesus Christ in its early days as it spread from Jerusalem outwards. Uh, and, and we knew this would happen right from the outset of the book of Acts. We knew that that would be the pattern because Jesus laid down that pattern in Acts 1, verse 8. And, and we've mentioned this blueprint uh, that Jesus gave to his disciples pretty much every week. But it's important for us to remember and keep going back to because we need to remember that nothing that happens, nothing that we're reading about it is coincidental. It's all part of God moving his church throughout the known world. And so we read in Acts 1, verse 8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promised his followers that they would spread from their base in Jerusalem to the surrounding regions and beyond. And along the way, we've, we've seen this, that this move of Jesus' followers hadn't always been easy. In fact, the very first session we had, starting back in Acts 6, 7 and the start of verse, uh, chapter 8, showed that the believers were, were forced out of Jerusalem uh, because of the severe persecution that they were facing in the city. So they spread, and wherever they spread, remember this verse from Acts chapter 8, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so they were taking the message of the gospel outside the bounds of Jerusalem. And, and Luke then takes us in chapter 8 and focuses on the accounts of Philip, uh, who firstly goes to Samaria to preach to the good news of Jesus there. And we see that many in Acts 8, 12, many believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and of the, and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. And so the good news spreads. God is on the move. The church is on the move. And then Philip is directed to meet an Ethiopian man who believes and is baptized. The word of God is indeed spreading. The church is on the move. And then we reach chapter 9, where we have the dramatic story of one of the, the greatest opponents of Jesus and his followers. He then encounters the risen Christ himself, and he becomes a follower. And this is, of course, Saul, who would become Paul, one of the greatest Christian missionaries of all history. And we'll meet Saul again today in chapter 11. And he had been sharing the good news of Jesus in Damascus. He, he went to Jerusalem for a time and then had to go to Tarsus to be protected from his enemies who were basically trying to kill him to silence the message that he was now spreading, the message that he had once tried to squash. But Jesus' ministry continues through his people. And, and Luke, after chapter, at the second half of chapter 9, brings our attention to Peter, uh, who was traveling about the country, preaching and performing miracles. And those things proved that Jesus was very much still alive and active by his spirit through his people. Peter then has a dramatic encounter of his own in chapter 10, uh, where he is used by God to bring the message of salvation to a Roman soldier's house, a man called Cornelius. We see this in chapter 10 in the first half of chapter 11. And Peter, who was a devout Jewish man, he, he learned that through this wonderful scene that God's message of salvation was indeed for the whole world, not just for the Jews. But God was certainly bringing together people of all nations, all tribes, all tongues to himself. And Peter was witnessing the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that his good news message would spread to the ends of the earth. And Peter, along with the early Christians, were, were becoming eyewitnesses of this spread. And so God has, 
had been dramatically and undeniably on the move through his church in these chapters. And Luke now wants to take our attention to another specific example of this as he introduces us to the church in Antioch. And he does this by casting our minds in some ways back to the Christians who were spread from Jerusalem. So in Acts chapter 11 verse 19 we see that now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. You see how how Luke is, is casting our minds back. We've had these wonderful chapters of Paul and Peter at work, God at work through them. And now now Luke is saying, okay, remember how some of the uh, believers in Jerusalem had been scattered? Well, some of them went to these places and now he's going to focus us in on those places. And so our minds are drawn back to that dispersed group of believers from Jerusalem. Uh, And they're traveling big distances and they're spreading the gospel uh, where they go. So Phoenicia Cyprus and Antioch, they they are beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria. Indeed, they're beyond the borders that many of these people would have been uh, experiencing. And so here is just an example of some of the places in which they went. Uh, If if we had been gathered together, I would have got you to flick to the back of your Bible, of of the chair Bible, and you'd see this map. And so the the first disciples had began in Jerusalem. They were spreading through Judea. And you see Samaria up here. Uh, We left Philip in Samaria. Um, uh, or, sorry, in Caesarea, and we saw uh, uh, Peter then go to Caesarea. That's where he met uh, Cornelius. Here we have Damascus way up here, which is where Paul had, Saul had been on the way to. But just look at how far Antioch is away. Look at how far Cyprus is away. We're going to um, encounter some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is not even on this map. It's way over west. And so you see uh, Saul had even ended up in Tarsus way up here. So you can see how this gospel this good news message of jesus is indeed spreading and it's spreading fast and it's an exciting time to be a christian Um, but notice that even as they're spreading in verse 19 again they're spreading to phoenicia cyprus and antioch but they're spreading the word only among the jews Uh, and so some of the barriers that we had seen broken down in peter's story uh, recognizing that the gospel was for more than the jewish people uh, those barriers hadn't quite been broken down right across the board. Um, we're, and we're going to see this a little bit more in the second half of chapter 11 as we zoom in on Antioch. Uh, that It's still a new thing to take the gospel to those uh, non-Jews who were living in the region. And so moving on into verse 20, uh, we see this. That some of them, however, so some of them, that is some of those who were scattered, Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Uh, And so as we saw from the map, these men are a long way from home, uh, but their passion for sharing Jesus is remarkable. And having seen Philip's interaction with the Samaritans and Peter's interaction with the Romans, now we see Greeks welcomed into hearing the good news of Jesus. The church is on the move. Verse 21 gives us a very simple but profound summary of what happens when the gospel is shared. The Lord's hand was with them and great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. A great number of people turned to the Lord. What a, what a wonderful phrase. Uh, and look throughout his, his uh, records and acts, right up the first 10 chapters, has been, he, he's been keen to show throughout those writings that the church has seen great numerical growth Uh, and sometimes he gives more details than others um, but then there's times when he gives really specific details times when he gives general details but we see things like this examples like these in acts 1 15 we have 120 believers gathered in jerusalem 
By the end of chapter 2, after the day of Pentecost, we're told 3,000 were baptized and added to their number. At the end of that chapter, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. That doesn't include the women and children. Acts 5.14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Start of chapter 6, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. Again in chapter 6, the number of disciples increased rapidly. In Acts 8.12, the Samaritan believers believed and were baptized, so the number is growing. the end of chapter 9, we have this marking point in Luke's writing where he says, Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it, that is the church, increased in numbers. End of chapter 9, many believed in the Lord. And then Acts 10 and 11, as we saw, um, Cornelius' house, his whole house, Cornelius had drawn a crowd. He had gathered all of his friends together, it seems, and to hear the good news, and they had responded en masse. And so Luke has been keen to show that the, the, the church is growing numerically, quickly, uh, and all over the place. And now we have the church in Antioch. Uh, and we see from the men from Cyprus and Cyrene that a great number of people turned to the Lord. Uh, and actually in this short section, I don't know whether you picked it up as we were reading, in these verses from verse 19 to 30, uh, Luke has that phrase two more times, a great number of people. And so in verse 24 and in verse 26, we see a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then again in verse 26, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So all of these occasions where where Luke records the numbers of people gathered or or very visible signs of the church growing, not only are they encouragement for us as we read, they should be encouragement for us now today. And they should encourage us because they're evidence that the claims that Jesus made about his church were true and therefore still are true. We've referenced this a couple of times in this series already, but Jesus claimed in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus promised that he would build his church. And here Luke is marking out the evidence that he did build his church. And of course, as as we gather here this morning, as believers in Jesus, followers of him, we are doing so as proof that Jesus continues to build his church. He continued to spread the good news from the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the middle of the first century all the way to 2,000 years later in the tiny pocket of Belfast that we find ourselves in on a tiny island miles from Jerusalem, miles from Antioch. And indeed believers joining us from all over the world, from Australia and the Philippines and beyond. Jesus did build his church and Jesus continues to build his church. This is evidence, the book of Acts is evidence, and we know that to be true today. Uh, And somehow, and for some reason that only God knows, his primary way of working in the world through his church is through his people. I don't know if you remember a phrase that Paul Brennan used a couple of weeks ago with us, that the risen Jesus is at work in his church through his spirit. The risen Jesus at work in his church, that's his people, us, through his spirit. And of course, the work of Jesus means that his church witness for him in the world. And so his church grows as people come to know him and see him through us. And this is the model that we see here, isn't it? These, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene have been Jesus's agents on the ground. Uh, and now, In verse 22, we see that God involves others in that great gospel work too. So these men from Cyprus and Cyrene had gone to Antioch and started to share the good news with Greeks also. And the church was beginning to grow as people uh, 
content as people came to know and believed in Christ. Verse 22, then we read, News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Uh, and so again, here we have this example of, of the church in Jerusalem acting like a, like a command center for the spread of the church throughout the region. Uh, and when they hear of many coming to faith in Antioch, they send Barnabas to check things out. Uh, and I guess we have to remember that, that many of the Christians in Jerusalem may still have been cautious about the gospel spreading so far. Uh, and so maybe they needed to hear from a trusted source about what was going on. Remember, we had seen this in Acts chapter 8 when, when Peter and John went to Samaria to join Philip. Uh, to see the, the work of God and the believers there. And so on this occasion, they send Barnabas and he heads to Antioch. Uh, and if reputations are anything to go by, Barnabas is the guy that you would want to see walk through the door of your church. Yes, much of his story is yet to unfold in the book of Acts, but what we know of him already tells us that this is a man who's going to have a positive impact on the folks in Antioch. We even read here, it, it's almost a throwaway phrase but in verse 24, we see Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And that phrase might even remind us of Stephen in chapter 6 and 7 when we read phrases like that. Virtually the same description is given of both men. And that is not bad company to be clumped in with from Barnabas's point of view. But it's clear from, from what we see about Barnabas here that this was a man who lived out the faith that he professed. His belief was, was visible. And we've seen that throughout encounters that we've had of Barnabas up and through the, the book of Acts already. And so we see in Acts chapter 4 when we're first introduced to Barnabas. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, 36, we read, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I mean, what a nickname to have. Barnabas was a, was a special kind of guy, able to get alongside people and spur them on. The son of encouragement. And then the next time we meet Barnabas is in Acts chapter 9, when Saul comes to Jerusalem to meet with the disciples after his conversion. Uh, and, and understandably, perhaps the disciples are skeptical of the story. I mean, this man, Saul, who had been leading the charge to imprison them and kill some of them, now wants to join them? Surely that can't be the case. Uh, but look at what we read in Acts 9, 27. But Barnabas took him, that is Saul, and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord. And it goes on. And Barnabas advocates for Saul before the apostles. And what I love about that is that Barnabas had clearly spent enough time with Saul to hear his story. And to see in Saul's life the work of God that had been done. But Barnabas is the one that goes to get Saul. Barnabas is the one that goes to retrieve him and bring him back into the fold in Jerusalem. He was a great man. He was an encourager. A man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Indeed, William Barclay has called him the man with the biggest heart in the church. The man with the biggest heart in the church. This is Barnabas. And so what a man to walk into this church in Antioch and to suss out what God has been doing among his people there. He's been doing a great thing and Barnabas is going to witness it. But Barnabas is also going to bring so much to the people in Antioch. And there's a big challenge there, isn't there? In terms of when, when we see characters like this in the Bible, I think we can often think that, that they're, they're too good to be true or that can never be a real life scenario or I could never be like that. But God's spirit is the same. God's spirit who was at work in Barnabas is at work in you and me. If we are, if we are followers of Jesus, if we are calling him Lord and Savior, then our lives can demonstrate some of these things that we see in the characters of Scripture. And look, let's look on. 
uh, and see what Barnabas sees whenever he arrives in the church of Ant- in Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, what a phrase. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. God had been at work in the Christians in Antioch. And that was that work was clearly visible. There, there was evidence in their lives of the faith that they now professed. Barnabas arrived and saw the results of the work of grace in their lives. And that's not only remarkable, it's challenging, isn't it? Paul Twist spoke about this last week, but there, there's a challenge for those of us who follow Jesus. Do our lives demonstrate what the grace of God had done. If Barnabas was to walk into my life, would he be able to see what the grace of God had done? Is there visible and tangible outworking of the inner work that God is doing in our lives? See, perhaps if we're struggling to see, struggling to answer that question positively, maybe we need to heed the encouragement that Barnabas gives to the church in Antioch. Did you catch that there? He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their heart. There's a sense here of of wholehearted devotion that we need to recognize and perhaps rekindle in our own lives. Now now don't mistake me, the, the grace of God at work in our lives is an internal transformation of the heart. Absolutely. I am not suggesting, nor does the Bible suggest, that there is any sense of having to work our way to earn that grace but what we do see here is that a grasp of that grace, understanding that grace, should then be evident. It should be visible. And so if we're lacking in that evidence, maybe we need to reconnect our hearts with the hearts of our good Father. And allow our wholehearted devotion to him to burn deeply once again. I'm reminded of the warning given to, to the church at Ephesus by Jesus in Revelation. When, when he said, yet I hold this against you, you have forgotten the love you had at first. Can, can you see how this links with Barnabas's encouragement to the church in Antioch? He's saying, remain true with all your heart. Hold tight because it is possible to drift away from the love that we have for the Lord. It's possible to get distracted and allow our lives to be filled with a multitude of other, much lesser things. And therefore we forget the love we had at first. And so the encouragement from Barnabas may may well be needed by many of us. To remain true to the Lord with all our heart. See, God doesn't change. God doesn't drift. God's love doesn't dwindle. So we need to cling tightly to him. Return back to him. Remain true to him. The the narrative of the the account goes on. And we see that Barnabas goes to Tarsus to find Saul. And to bring him back to Antioch to help minister to the people there. Uh, And as we said earlier, Saul had been in Tarsus uh, for a while. And we know from Galatians that he had been spreading the gospel there and in other places. But in some senses, he was in hiding there because of his old Jewish friends uh, who really didn't appreciate that he was now siding with the Christians, not fighting against them. But again, it's Barnabas who sees Saul's true potential. Uh, He has witnessed the grace of God in Saul's life. And so he goes to Tarsus to bring him to Antioch because he knows and can see how God will use him there. And together they minister for a whole year. 
uh, and engage in a great deal of teaching with the people. Did you pick that up in, at the end of verse 26? That Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. You see, together they, they minister here and they teach. And so now that, now that these people in Antioch had become believers, they become Christians, they needed to be taught the things of God. Uh, they needed to study the scripture. They needed to see how God's word would bring light and life to their lives. Now, I can't imagine that that means that Saul and Barnabas didn't continue to share the good news of Jesus, that the church in Antioch didn't continue to see new believers join their number. But there's also a recognition that Christians needed to grow and develop in their understanding of God. And we have this example for us as well in Acts chapter 2, uh, right at the end of the chapter, when we see this wonderful picture of the early church. And in verse 42, uh, we see these words, that the first believers, that is the 3,000 that gathered, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. See, they devoted themselves to teaching. And, and that is an important marker of a healthy church. But let's not fall into the trap that the church exists only for the benefit of those who already believe. You, you see, the list in, in Acts 2.42, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, it could sound like it was quite an insular group, quite inwardly focused. But that's not the case. You see, we see just a few verses later in verse 47 that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the church continued to grow and look out as it engaged in those activities. And I say that because I, I wonder sometimes, and, and I may well be wrong in this, but I wonder if there's a, a false impression that we can either be focused on evangelism, that is, outwardly sharing our faith and explaining the good news of Jesus, or we're involved in discipleship, that is, growing in our faith in Jesus. It's an either-or. But I think the model we see in Acts 2, and the model I think we see here in Antioch, is that the two go together. The pattern seems to be that followers of Jesus who grow in their love for Jesus, they are then more readily ready to share his love with others. And so those new people then respond to the gospel themselves and indeed grow in their desire to know more of Jesus. And so there's a, there's a loop rather than an either or, it's a both and. And not only that, what, what we can see, particularly in the Acts 2 account, is that the community of faith, when it models the love that God commands we have for one another, people are drawn into it. And so as we grow in our love for Jesus, we therefore grow in our love for one another as brothers and sisters, as we'll come on to see in a minute. And as we demonstrate that love with one another, that love then attracts people because it is so countercultural. And so I don't see this difference in focus between evangelism and discipleship as the activities churches should be involved in. It's both and. Now, of course, there will be situations and circumstances where we may heavily gear our intention, our focus towards one of those emphases. But, but it's not the case that you can only do one at a time. Let me, let me try to summarize it like this, if I can. That, that people who come to know Jesus, so people who hear the good news and respond to Jesus, there's a desire then to know him more. So evangelism, which, which draws people to him, leads to discipleship. Evangelism leads to discipleship because as people come to know Jesus, they want to know him more. But then people who are growing in Jesus, people who are growing in their discipleship and their maturity in him, 
they have a greater desire to show his his love and his care and his good news message with the world. And so discipleship leads to evangelism. This is why I don't see the two things as completely separate. Because evangelism leads to growth in discipleship. Growth in discipleship leads to more genuine evangelism. And so it's a circular argument rather than an either or or a both and. And I wonder, wonder do we need to be aware of that as a church? Uh, and I'm speaking maybe locally here as Gilnerhurst Baptist Church. Are, are we in danger of becoming insular? Now, I'm not saying this is happening. I'm putting this out as a warning. Are we in danger of becoming insular, becoming a bit too comfortable, um, maybe even getting theologically puffed up on all the teaching we receive and take in, and therefore all the discipleship that we're involved with, but then we neglect to share that teaching and the good news of Jesus. And so we're focusing too heavily on on the building one on the on the puffing one another up, rather than sharing that out. Now the risk is also true the other way, that we that we are so focused on on sharing the good news of Jesus with others and and drawing people to His love, that we neglect the sense of maturing and spurring one another on that we are called to do. So we're called to both. It's not an either or; it's a both and. And we pray that God would continue to guide us and hold these things as a both hand. That we would lovingly share our faith, share the good news of Jesus with those around us. And as those folks respond to that and give their lives to Jesus, then may they be built up in him, matured in him. And as they do that, they will then also share their good news of Jesus with others. And so the cycle repeats. It's disciples making disciples who make disciples. Getting back to the, the account of Antioch here in chapter 11, uh, the, the very end of verse 26 is, is fascinating. That We see here that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now in this passage already we've seen a few examples of, of great reputations of, of Saul and Barnabas. Um, and here's a great one for the church in Antioch to have. That they were the group, the first group to be called Christians, literally followers of Christ. Or those who have declared allegiance to Christ. And the, the language is really interesting here because I think it suggests that, that they were called that title by people around them. This was not necessarily a term that they created internally for themselves. And so I suppose that shows a couple of things. Firstly, that the Christian church was becoming understood in its own right rather than, than a sect of the Jewish faith. It, it's becoming distinct. But it also shows the reputation that these Jesus followers had and how that reputation was growing. Now, I have to be honest enough to say that the term was probably not meant to be totally positive in the same way that it is today in certain cases. It might have been a way to to poke fun at this new group. Look at those Christians over there, those Jesus followers. But regardless of the motive of why that term came about, it shows what a powerful example this church was in their city. As people looked at these folks, individually and collectively, they saw Christ. Through the lifestyle and the message of these people, Christ's name was being made known. And surely that's the goal of every church in every setting and in every place around the world. So the call here, I think, is for us to be known as Christians in the purest sense of that term, of people whose lives and words demonstrate and display Jesus to a world that watches on. Let's be known as Christians. In this section, verse 27 to 30, it ends with a a very real-life, tangible example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. See, in verse 
27 to 30, we're, we're told of a prophecy that was given for a famine that would come, and particularly how this famine would hit the region of Judea, especially hard, it seems. And one of the reasons Luke's, Luke mentions this here is to show how the church in Antioch responded. And in verse 29 and 30, we see that response. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So, so the church in Antioch hear of this great need that was coming for the church in Judea and around the region. They'd likely never met anyone from the Jerusalem church apart from Barnabas. Yet they've been so captivated by the love of God that they see every Christian as their brother and sister. You see that language? Provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And so as a response, they give sacrificially to relieve some of the hardship that their brothers and sisters might be facing. And just notice the intentionality behind each and every action. So they gave as each one was able. So they weighed it up and they gave what they could. It took planning. It took decisiveness. Then they decided to give. They decided to provide help. This was a, a concrete, decisive moment. And then the start of verse 30. I love that this tiny phrase, but it's so, uh, it's so direct. This they did. They didn't just say it was a good idea. They didn't just have a, a couple of committee meetings about it. They didn't just even pray about it. They did it. They heard there was a need. Their brothers and sisters were in need. And so they decided to give and they did. It was something very definite. And in some ways, I don't think Luke wants us to focus on the, the financial generosity of this church in and of itself. I think what he's doing here is adding this detail to show us yet another example of how this group of Christians actively live out their faith. They're actively obeying the teaching and the commands of Jesus. The idea of, of a financial relief fund might sound fairly straightforward to us, but when we take it as part of the story of this remarkable church who were devoted to teaching, they were growing in numbers, they were gaining a reputation in their city as followers of Jesus then this is a direct example of the outpouring of that faith. It's yet another example of faith in action. And so I think there's much that we can learn from this church in Antioch, and particularly its birth here in chapter 11. Uh, and I realise that as we've just walked through the, that passage verse by verse, maybe there's been different things that have struck you as we've gone along. But it's a significant launching point. Antioch will become a significant launching point for the spread of the gospel. And so it's important that we recognise the lessons that we can learn from this church here as it is birthed. And so I wonder what you've been struck by. I wonder what God has highlighted for you in the establishment of this, this wonderful church. I wonder what struck you particularly as we just meandered our way through those verses. Perhaps you're, you're struck by the, the courageous example of the unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who were willing to break new ground for the name of Jesus. Or, or maybe it was the, the reputation of Barnabas, and thinking of him as this pillar of the early church, yet often working so personably in the background, caring for people with such love and encouragement. Or I wonder if you've been challenged by thinking, in our role as Christians gathered in the church to be taught by God's word, to deepen our love for him, our, our knowledge of him, which then compels us out. Or maybe you've been struck by the sacrificial generosity of this church who so willingly and so thoughtfully gave for their brothers and sisters in the faith. How convinced they were of their unity 
with these complete strangers because of the work of God in their lives, which had bound them together. For me, one of the things that impacted me in these verses was once again the reality that God grows his people. God grows his people and he uses a variety of ways to do that. And so he grows his people through his grace. I love that phrase in verse 23, that Barnabas saw what the grace of God had done. That God's grace in their lives produced fruit that was visible. And I love even the sense that this church that would become so strategic was started by men whose names we don't even know. Yet what we do know is God's grace was active and God's grace was transforming hearts. So God grows his people through his grace. Secondly, I'm struck by how God grows his people through his people. In this case, God grows the Christians in Antioch through the gifts and time and service of of Barnabas and Paul. And very specific people placed for a very specific task. Also, that God's people would grow. God grows his people through his people. And finally, God grows his people through his church. And I mean that, the united church. And and isn't it a, a great example and a great encouragement to know that as God is at work here among us as individuals and as a corporate church family together, that we are united to brothers and sisters all across the world. And along with that encouragement is a challenge to be intentionally invested with time and resources in, our, in the well-being of our brothers and sisters, in doing what we can to enable them to flourish in their ministry where they are. So God grows his people. He's continuing to grow his church. That's the story that we're seeing throughout this section of the book of Acts. We know that he still continues to grow his church. And he grows his church through his grace, through his saving power, the grace that he displayed through the Lord Jesus Christ. He grows his people in in knowledge and maturity as followers of him in response to the grace. And, And then he gives us opportunities to demonstrate that grace to one another as his family. God grows his people through his grace. He grows his people through his people. He grows his people through his church. So I pray that as we reflect on this encounter, and this this story of the, the birth of the church in Antioch, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, but that we would see that God is on the move. The church is on the move. And so maybe we look at this passage and think that that our role is like the folks from Cyprus and Cyrene. No one may ever know our name, but our job is to share the good news of Jesus, to make his name known. Isn't that the wonderful phrase that is used in verse 20? That they speak to the Greeks, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about how his grace can transform lives. And we see that There are some who are called for a specific purpose to a specific place. And maybe that's you in your workplace. Maybe that's you in your family. Maybe that's you in your neighborhood, in your your friendship circle. And you're called there to, to, to grow God's people. Maybe those who know him already. And you're called in that friendship group to, to, to help one another as followers of Jesus to go deeper in his word, to, to spend time praying together, to investing in your, your relationship with him as you do that together or maybe that's as you share his good news with those who don't yet know him and God grows his people through his church 
and as we intentionally support and invest and pray for his church globally. Let's remember that God's church is on the move to the ends of the earth. And so we praise him for his, his work of grace in our lives and in the lives of so many others, millions of others. I realise that that's maybe a different way than we sometimes deal with passages um, where we've just walked our way through. Uh, I also recognise we've done a lot of jumping around of different references. I hope that's been a helpful journey for you as you've, as you've seen God's work in the lives of the folk at Antioch and how that speaks to us in our lives here. What we're going to do now uh, is just have a moment of quiet uh, and then I'm going to play a song. We're going to sing Living Hope. Uh, this living hope that has been birthed in us as a response to the gospel. Uh, and so if you know and love and follow Jesus, after that song we're going to share communion together. And so I'd encourage you to gather the elements around uh, so that you have them with you. Uh, and then we're going to join in and celebrate communion. Remember the death of our Saviour that made all of this possible. Uh, and so let's have a moment of reflection, not to let all of those words, not to let God's word just pass by, but let's reflect on what he may have been teaching us. And then we will uh, share the song together uh, before we gather for communion. Uh, so let's spend some time in prayer.